Ah, that old bald move intro music for Game of Thrones, Aaron. It's like an old friend. Yeah, that's an old friend that uh, stabbed me in the back, uh, left me for dead, and threw me down a staircase. <laughs> Th- threw me off a parapet, Game Bowl style. But what fond memories. <laughs> what what fond, fond memories. What fond memories. Uh yeah, if someone is going to eviscerate you, you want them to have a steady hand and, and know how to eviscerate a man, you know? Sure. You don't want someone who's never eviscerated anyone before doing it. No, you want a deft hand eviscerating <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. So who was the artist for that intro music? That was uh, Highway Superstar. Highway Superstar. And Highway Superstar uh, donated the music? I'm just curious about the uh, the history of the music. Yeah, we, we reached out to him and said, hey, uh, you're 80s Throne Rider or Air Throne, Throne Wolf. He had a yeah. couple different uh, nicknames. It's uh, super dope. We'd love to use it on our podcast. And he's like, man, that'd be cool. And that's, nice. uh, we've been doing it ever since. And all these years later, it's still warming the, the hearts and hearths of people all over the world. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. I don't know if you heard. Have you heard? Did you hear that? I've, I have heard. I've, it's, it's been my lived reality these uh, last six, seven months. Okay. All right. So a lot of people have developed hobbies over the pandemic. Uh, and I'm curious if you've developed like bread making or gardening or something like that. I actually started painting Warhammer 40K miniatures, um, but so far the hobby mostly involves me forlornly looking at my boxes of plastic dudes and thinking, oh man, when am I going to get a chance to put the next layer of paint on? (laughs) This is so on brand for you that I almost feel like you made that up just to keep with the brand. No, it's, it's, uh, alas, it's true. I, uh... Uh, I have I have this little guy here who's just been staring at me. Why won't you paint me? Why won't you paint me, Aaron? Look how cool I look. How much cooler would I look painted? Yeah. And I'm like, I'll, I'll get I'll get there. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking, like that's pretty on brand. I could also see you like doing little miniature ships and bottles. Like that seems like something that would be about your speed. If I had the patience for it, that would totally be my speed for sure. <laughs> Who in Next Generation did that? There was someone who did that. Picard. I think we just. I think we are about to watch the episode or just did where he was saying it's a ship in a bottle. What? None of you. None of you people. Ever... Well, I know Picard had a ship in a bottle in his ready room. It's just him and Chief O'Brien. Riker, <laughs> Data, Worf looked at him like, "What are you talking about?" And Chief O'Brien said, I, "I used to make ships in a bottle, sir." So painting Warhammer figurines. That's what you've been doing mm-hmm. this pandemic. Yeah. Um. Would you like to ask me what I've been doing this <laughs> in the pandemic? Uh, Anthony, during this pandemic, what have you been up to? What what new hobbies have you have you branched out into? I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> I've been interviewing tons of literary experts about a Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. and this came about because you may remember that you and I wrote a couple books together, uh, Gods of Thrones. I do remember that. That put me in contact with a lot of academics who love Game of Thrones in a way I probably couldn't have anticipated. You know, lots of people teach classes on Game of Thrones, and I decided, you know what I should do? I should interview everyone that I've met about a chapter in the first novel by George R. R. Martin. And so that's what I did. I go chapter by chapter through the first nine chapters of A Game of Thrones, and each interview is with someone who's read the book very closely and 
as you know, I recorded these things. Sure. And I'd like to put them out as a trial podcast to see who's interested in rereading A Game of Thrones with me and a few English nerds. A Game of Thrones book club with Anthony and a bunch of academics. A bunch of eggheads. Yeah, a bunch of eggheads. We're calling it Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm also doing a rewatch of the HBO adaptation with a comic friend of mine, Steve Osborne, and he's watching Game of Thrones for the very first time. And so every podcast that I drop, it'll be a conversation with he and I about an episode from season one. So that'll be a lot of fun. A little bit of a show refresher and deep dive into the books. Deep dive into the books. Very superficial rewatch of the show. Okay. And, Aaron, you're one of my guests. You're going to come on and talk about Tyrion's first POV chapter. One of the many reasons my dudes have been painted. I'm just too busy making podcasts. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So what we're going to do is we're going to use the rest of this promo podcast to give the listeners a little taste of some of these interviews. Uh, Aaron, I do appreciate your willingness to do a little experiment with the old Game of Thrones feed, and I hope that your listeners enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Indeed, and I will make an appearance on Chapter 9, Tyrion's first chapter, POV chapter. Yeah, looking forward to it, dude. Feedback can be sent to book at baldmove.com. Now here's an excerpt of my conversation with Dr. Chad Carmichael. It's a great depiction of a man who was once a great warrior. Yeah. If you know what's going on, by the end of the chapter reading it last night, I felt like, man, not only are his best days behind him and he's sort of physically in decline, Uh but he's in this position where he's completely being played for a fool by absolutely every single person in his life. Uh, Except maybe Ned. Uh, Well, John Oren probably tried to do right by him. Yeah, which dead. is probably why John Arn had to die. Right. So yeah, I mean, he's sort of um, he's a fool, is how he comes off to me. He's mm-hmm. a fool, and I, I think at a basic level, I don't even understand why he wanted to be king. I think he doesn't understand why he wanted to be king. Huh. Yeah. I, I, it never was a job that would be that he would be suited for. I think he wanted to be king because he wanted to win. Yeah, I think that sometimes Ned, among the fans or or commenters, has gotten a reputation for being a bit naive. And I thought it's interesting that in this chapter, Ned comes off as a fairly wise person. I think so. I, early on in this book, yeah. he really does seem like the ideal father figure. You know, yeah. it's not like he's waxing on and reciting poetry or whatnot. Yeah. Well, um, he didn't, he didn't want to be King. He didn't want to be King's hand. Right. He doesn't want power. Right. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. It's not, it's, it's not this, what you described as Robert wanted to win, right? It's, it's sort of, that's sort of a dumb idea. What do you, you want to win what? Uh, to, to what end? Like what, yeah. what purpose? Is, how is that going to change yeah. your life? How is yeah. that going to serve anyone? Uh, yeah. Are you, are you in the realm going to be happier for this victory? Yeah. Robert's not going to think ahead. Robert is not going to consider that question. He just, he's yeah. just, I want to, I want to be on the top. I want to stand on top of the mountain with my arms up. Right, right, right. I want to be the best and the strongest and the tallest. And I, I want to be the king. And what does that mean? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's for people that count coppers to think about. That's right. Exactly. It's very foolish. And so as a result, he's surrounded by people. Every part of the story he tells about his own life is, is a deception. Even the things he believes about uh, 
Ah, uh, yes. Liana. Dr. Lisa Wolfork on Jon Snow. Jon is someone who is there by the largesse of Ned. And Catelyn hates his guts and sees him as a threat to her legitimate children and Basically, why would you bring a snake on an airplane? That's what's happening with bringing Jon Snow home. He's going to murder all the children and take over. And, you know, I mean, like she has a lot of contempt and suspicion of him. um, And she continues to have that always. Yeah. And it just seems to me that the system doesn't work unless everybody does their part. That's right. Jon, in short order, is going to choose to go to the wall. Mm hmm. And but he makes this choice when he's drunk. That's another thing we should think about. <laughs> he's at the dinner. That's true. No, he's totally shit-faced. He is really drunk. No one's I paying attention to that. him. <laughs> he's a drunk teenager, so drunk teenagers don't make good decisions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he really doesn't have anywhere else to go. That's right. He's making the only choice he feels like he can make mm-hmm. in a way that he can honor the system. Yes. But but carve out a life for himself where he's not being loathed at every turn by Catelyn's wary eye, yeah, right? I know, right? And what this a is hard way. To we go, don't know. Goodness. We don't know Garrett's story, but it's stories like this that lead men to the wall in the first place. Comic Steve Osborne on dating other comics and bears. So I don't yeah, know. I don't true. know if these two are going to get along. One one is like the biggest kneeler in the history of kneelers. <laughs> One's just not about it. I mean, I think that she might really enjoy like killing him. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, she fought Jamie and kind of fell in love with Jamie, I think. Or at least something close to that. I think she fell in love with uh the the night. Like she's she was with a knight and the knight like regardless of what you think of Jamie Lannister, I think any knight that considers themselves to be, you know, devoted to the craft probably sees Jamie mm-hmm. for at the top of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's probably a little little bit of a starstruck component to it. It's kinda of when uh, comics date other comics. Yeah. Right. Do you think yeah. that that's a good idea, by the way? I mean, we no, never talked I, about this. Do, do you think it's I, a good idea for comics to date other comics? I've never seen it work out. Uh-huh. That I can think of. I mean, I it just doesn't. The issue is, I mean, you have to be a pretty secure person, I think, to because because comedy the the comedy community is a bit of a contradiction in terms because it's a community. We're all kind of in it together. We all kind of understand what we're each going through uniquely, right? So, but the other part of this is that we're all we're all vying for the same stage time to some degree, and nothing puts that in better perspective than a comedy competition because you, you go from like, no, I really believe I want this person to do well in any other given night to tonight going like, man, I really hope they bomb. And I mean, I guess that's sort of the case with competition, but in, it's different, right. Than being like, I want to be better than I also want them to do poorly. Um, well, is there also truth to the notion that in general comics are either deeply wounded or they're neurotic or they've got some sort of, mental condition that fuels their comedy but in reality they're they're not (laughs) not the healthiest people in the world right because you usually have a tug of war between uh narcissism and self-loathing which 
Sure. You know, it's like it's like I I hate myself enough to be funny, but I also think highly enough of myself that people should hear about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So then you then you add two of those people together in a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. Chances are, see, I feel like being not being in that world. I feel like it'd be better if those types of people would pair off, so we can keep them <laughs> out of the general population. Sure. No, I, and it, well, that that is that's probably the best of all possible scenarios. There's also the the allure and the appeal of the funny person that will bring other people to them. But it, so I, it's it's hard, I think, to see people who are dating in the comedy community and not feeling threatened by or jealous of. And that's a real hard thing, I think, to reconcile. Mm-hmm. I think it would be hard for a normal person and that much harder for for comics. Sure. So in this case with Brienne and and uh, Tormund, um, I don't know. Are they? I mean, I guess they're all. They're probably. They would be competing to kill the most people, perhaps. Well, here's the here's the issue. I think a lot of fans were going hard at the Jamie and Brienne mm. possibility, and then Tormund comes along, and he, you know, he needs a. He needs a couple trips to HR first off. Sure. And then and then they kind of felt like, no, 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 no. I want to see Jamie and Brienne together. I don't want Tormund. Uh, Come on. There's no way Jamie and Brienne would ever get together. Well, and that's always been my, my, my pushback was always sort of like, I think Tormund knows who he is. And I don't think Jamie quite knows who he is. No, at best, Jamie knows he's a guy that will always love his sister. <laughs> that's, the, and that's, that's the one thing he knows about him. It seems to be the one thing he's the most confident about. So I don't think... I don't and think that's, that, that's going to be a hard hurdle to get over in, in uh, couples counseling. Yeah, I think so. So, so I think... I, so anybody, I was always kind of pro-Tormund Brienne, but I just don't think he's going at it. In the he right may not be way. going at it the right way, but we don't really know what exactly tickles uh, Brienne's fancy. Um, well, let's all right. Let's just let, let's just be real about this. If Tormund is to be believed, he hasn't had sex with his sister, but he has had sex with a she bear. Yeah, and, and and Brienne has not had good luck with bears. No, um, which would seem like uh, at least a a coupling of convenience. You know, I mean, he may be like, look, I can protect you against a bear real good. <laughs> I can't promise the bear won't want to come back. Yeah, look, I can't promise it won't come back for you. The, the bear, <laughs> he may he may distract the bear with all of his lovemaking. Yes. But then that he, just means she's protected from the bear. But then now she's got to be jealous of the bear. Uh, I think I feel like there'd be an understanding. Like, okay. hey, look. I like I like the bears like I like the bears. I like you like I like you. Yeah, she there is, isn't she's an pretty issue. open-minded about Renly. I think that she could be open-minded about Tormund's bear affair. Yeah. And again, if it was one of those things like, look, I know you don't love this particular part of me, but I'm I'm keeping I'm keeping you safe from the bears. Dr. Jamie Smith on Ghost Stories.
I remember Cersei once referring to the what's beyond the wall as grumpkins. Yeah, snarks and, and grumpkins. That's snarks right. and grumpkins. And this is what those monsters have become in the mythologized uh-huh. uh, South. Um, they're less so as they go north. And so Nan's in the north. And I wonder... Does she sort of... Well, we all do that from time to time. And I I think it takes an extremely rare person. Tell me, this is the first time I've ever said this out loud. So you tell me if I'm I'm full of it. It takes a very rare person to have the same relationship to ghosts in the dark as they do in the light. Mm. Like, like I don't believe in ghosts, but there have been times at three in the morning <laughs> yeah. where the idea of, I relate to the concept of ghosts much differently. You know, I, I just watched a scary movie or whatever. It. It's like emotionally, it's more charged for me, even though I know it's not real. I don't know if that makes any sense. That's fantastic. I think this is exactly how we should be thinking of Nan telling her stories and maybe just people like Nan, mm. the Nans of the North where they'll tell their stories to those kids. And in the South, blah, yeah, whatever. But in the North, things are darker. They feel the crispness mm. of winter coming. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit more real up there. And, right. You, know, you can, at one point, subscribe to the narrative. Yeah. Of course, that says, hey, there might be a ghost in my room. But by day, uh, there's no ghost in my room. I'm scientifically minded. Yes, that's right. I think that's right. I mean, for some people, for some people, maybe the other people have no, they're never up at three in the morning and they never, scary movies don't change their, the way that they think at all. I I don't Mm, know. Psychos, I call them. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Jana Matthews on medieval vocabulary. A lot of what you're going to get today is uh, the medievalist. In me coming out, sort of as someone who specializes in medieval lit and history and culture, and particularly European history and culture, a lot of my thoughts and perspectives will sort of draw back and and make the claim, either implicitly or explicitly, that Martin is pulling from medieval, both medieval lore and um, and text. So I can just give some insights from that perspective. And then I. Well, that's right. In fact, you're not just meeting Catelyn in the Godswood or meeting Ned in the Godswood, they're kind of meeting you in your own academic placement. Right. Absolutely. Right. right. So, it, so we're yes. these characters and us. So we're we're mutually informative at this point. Right? Absolutely. And, and so, one thing I can say, you know, maybe outside of the realm of academia, is that as you mentioned, you know, you've got Catelyn who's from the south and and moves up to the north. And one thing I, I wanted to say is like we encounter her first in a garden. And it's, well, it's Godswood. And she immediately reminisces and goes back and thinking nostalgically about what the garden looks like in River Run, right. in her homeland. And it's filled with redwoods and birds and you know, scent of flowers. And, you know, right. the, the, you know, you're from California and probably from Redwood Territory up north. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it sort of seems like this Edenic paradise that is crafted in the likeness of Northern California. <laughs> you know, to be, right. Uh, right. And sort of the well, national parks there. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't realize till just now. And and I totally should have. But in the ancient world, a lot of temples were modeled after gardens, right? 100%, yeah. So, so there yeah. was sort of this mirror relationship between the way that you would wall in a sacred garden yep. and the way that you would decorate the walls of a temple. Even yes. so much so that the pillars would be painted like trees and then the yes. ceiling would look like luminaries and whatnot. You'd have animals depicted. And so clearly... The garden in River Run is not going to function in the same way that the garden in uh, 
Winterfell does. Of course, yeah. that's obvious. But the fact is that here we have winter in Winterfell sort of a more ancient culture wherein there hasn't been a move to put the garden inside yet, right? So right. even though the castle's built around the garden, that really functions as Ned's temple. And and yep. Catelyn really is an outsider. And it makes her reminisce about the comfort of her own yeah. temple with the, the crystals and the rainbow colors and the, the smells of oil and whatnot. It just reminds her of how different her system of worship is in the South. Yeah. So tell me about Kennings. This is something that's new to me, and I'm really interested yeah. in this. Okay, so Kennings date back. There, it's a popular trope that they used in, in old English poetry, and Beowulf is sort of the poem that's most known for that. And in its most simple sense, it's a compound word. Beowulf, for example, in some popular ones, they would use the term battle sweat for blood, uh, or they might refer to a corpse as being raven harvest. And, you know, the king was a ring giver or a ring bearer. Right. And so and we see those all over Game of Thrones. You know, even in these early chapters, we've got blood riders. We have Godswood, right. you know, which is a, a compound term. Even the place names, we have Winterfell, River Run. And so just so I, I'm tracking with you, sometimes in order to delineate a particular idea or concept, mm -hmm. what you need to do is take two words and push them together to create a compound, but, or does it not always have to be a compound? I mean, usually they're compounds, but I think you're spot on in the sense that by bringing two words together and forming a neologism or a new word, essentially what it does is it it highlights and it accentuates that particular term and makes and elevates it. Right. And so, you know, I think when you when you think about it, Ned's sword is called a greatsword, and he right. glosses that or he kind of shortens it to ice. And so, greatsword is is basically saying it's like instead of saying it's the most powerful, biggest, longest, oldest mm -hmm. sword in the planet, you know, he can kind of combine that term and get and capture that essence in one compound word. Well, this is also an element of world building because mm -hmm. clearly, I mean, clearly these characters are speaking a very modern English most of the time, right? Yep. And the narrators are communicating in very modern ways a lot of the time. The, the trick is to build in enough of these so that you're hinting at an earlier time period, but you're not doing it so much that you are distracting the reader. Yes, very true. And that is, he, Martin is a master at that. You know, he takes everything from the culture and, um, you know, and the compound words is an easy way to do it. It, it antiquates the text without um, it becoming impossible to read. Podcaster Aaron Hubbard on himself. <laughs> Faux British, slightly mechanical, I'll take it, whatever. Yeah, you just want him reading fairy tales as you drift off to sleep. Yeah, can he be my GPS navigator? <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh -huh. uh, we, we will end with this question. Any character in all of Ice and Fire, the character that your friends and family think you are versus the character deep down inside you know you are. So it's a two-part question. <sighs> Oh, man. I, there's no way I can answer this without making myself seem like I'm just a giant asshole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what we want, Aaron. Uh, okay, we here's where I'm going to bounce it out. I, 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 think my friend, I, th I think my friends and family probably would choose. Join us this coming Thursday as author Stephanie Barbie Hammer and I cover the prologue and comic Steve Osborne and I cover the HBO adaptation. Please rate and review and tell your friends about Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo.